Welcome to Can They Do That? brought to you by Scott Law Team, the employment law firm. We are excited to discuss recent employment issues and events that affect your everyday life. Keep in mind this podcast is educational and is not a substitute for legal advice or professional consultation. If you need help, you can reach us at scottlawteam.com. I'm Corey Sabin, marketing strategist, joined by Kathleen Scott. How are you, Kathleen? Great to be here. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. You know, I think one of the pressing issues right now is just all about getting paid, wage an hour, and what is the right decorum in the workplace. So let's start with this pandemic that we're in. And I've been thinking about this. Somebody wants to work from home. As an employer, How do you monitor what they're doing? And as the employer, how do you determine what they should get paid if you think they're just sitting there watching soap operas? Yeah. And doesn't everyone want to work from home? Isn't it great? I mean, you could just be wearing anything you want as long as you look good from the waist up. You can be productive. You get your coffee. You sit down. You start your day. But the challenge is, when does your day start and when does it end? And so one issue becomes, are you working more hours now? Because it's so easy, right? There's no commute time. There's no, oh, I have to clock in. You just sit down and start your day. And so one of the challenges becomes tracking that time. And what we find from wage and hour perspective, people are working more, not less. They're working more. And they're having fewer interruptions. And they're less likely to take a lunch break or step away. And so now a person who maybe was only working 40 hours a week is working 45 or 50 hours a week, and they need to be paid overtime for that. So for all those um, remote workers that are out there listening, you might have a valid overtime claim. How do you prove that? So interestingly enough, um, the way the federal law works, the employer actually has the burden to track the number of hours that an employee works. The employee can rely on their good faith recollection. They just need to be able to raise their hand and say, I swear and affirm that I've been working you know, more than 40 hours and have a general estimate about how much that is. The other fun fact about remote working is a lot of people I know actually left the state, right? Especially people with small children who maybe had parents in other states and they weren't able to work unless they had childcare. And because of the pandemic, didn't have childcare locally, so mm-hmm. they drove and stay with their their parents. Um, So it's where the employee sits and does the work, what law controls. So Interesting. Yeah. So you can imagine um, if now an employer has workers all across the country where they only have them in Florida and someone gets injured or now there's a worker's comp issue or maybe that state has income tax and the state they left, like Florida, does not. Now they're having to pay all these different taxes and things. So um, Even if they were just there for a couple of weeks? Well, a couple of weeks weeks would make it a temporary situation. But the pandemic has lasted, in some cases, over two years, right? So um, that's those all become interesting issues because uh, so there's wage and hour laws to think about how many hours an employee is putting in. Um, and there's other issues like technology issues. Well, who owns that computer now? So, right. So there's data issues. So all of a sudden that computer that the employees using staying with their mom in Atlanta, Georgia, and they decide to go on Facebook and they post something that could hurt the brand. Mm-hmm. of the company, even though it's their personal account. Is there anything there? So great question. Uh, so posting on Facebook is depends on what you post. And so you do have a First Amendment, right? Um, it's different in different states, um, believe it or not. Um, but there's a federal law known as the National Labor Relations Act that says if you want to post something that's your opinion about your workplace and you're doing it to kind of create a better place to work or to make comments, 
and it could be like unionizing almost, and you're allowed to do it. Let me get, it's hard to, that's kind of a, you know, not a great concrete example, so let me give you one. There's a situation, famous case, where BMW is having a big rollout of its new X series, um, and the salesperson who attended went home and posted on his Facebook page, oh, that was great, those stale hot dog buns and, you know, canned soda, that was really a great way to roll out a $70,000 car. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. And so some, some coworkers saw his post, and they liked it. So some of them get disciplined, one of them gets terminated, and what the court said is that posting on Facebook was a protected activity because they were posting about something the employer did at the workplace, and the others who joined in by liking it, they are also protected. So all of them had to be reinstated. Interesting. What if they were to do that and go one step further? Instead of posting on Facebook, they come back and they go to Indeed or one of these job review sites and say, Seventy thousand car, seventy thousand dollar car, stale hot dogs, you know, bad soda, you know, uh, this place stinks, and gives the the employer three stars. Yeah, so they have a right to that opinion, and I think that's is that protected though. That's a little bit different because there wasn't that liking element exactly. to it. So the difference is it's not what we call concerted. So it has to be not just gripe. It has to be a concern that's legitimate about the workplace and shared by others. So it has to be that concerted to be protected activity. So interesting stuff. But I think what led us down this path was the question about the data, right? Yeah. Who so owns it? who owns that? Um, and, there's a, and it's an interesting question because it's very difficult to work even if you have a cloud-based workplace without ever saving something on your on your local drive, right? And so the employer owns the data. And so if there's a separation, does the employer have the right to come in and st- steal that data back or take that data back or wipe your computer clean? And so those are these are all these complicated issues that are coming up with these remote remote work situations. So what if the employee was using the computer and in his free time or her free time was just looking at other sites and when they give the computer back, they decide to wipe it so they don't see their history because there's privacy there. So it depends on what they wiped. Like everything, the law. The whole computer. Well, so, but I mean, what was on it? So, if like if there was client details and data on there, and that was something that the employer had a duty to protect, then deleting it might be a violation. There's actually a federal and state computer crime law on this point. So, you have to be careful. Sometimes deleting, wiping a computer can be just as violative as, you know, going online and downloading data. I mean, we all think about it in terms of, okay, if I download a virus on the company's computer, I violated a law. I mean, that seems that's so natural, right? We all get that. You can't do harm. Well, you, the same harm can exist by deleting as well. But if, what if you think it's stored in the cloud? Well, if it's not an intentional deletion, sure. I think that's different. But um, if you're intentionally trying to hide tracks, like because you accidentally, oops, emailed yourself all of your client list because you're going, say, oh, to a competitor, I mean, that's a different story. So Different story. It's interesting. Uh, the whole working from home, working remotely and bringing your computer and tracking your overtime. But now what if it's your commission. Mm. What happens then? So this is a really interesting and evolving area. Think about people that you know who did outside sales before mm-hmm. the pandemic. Well, when the pandemic came, there's no calling on anyone outside, right? And so individuals had to evolve. And so they start Zoom calling. And when you're Zoom calling, you're not an outside salesperson anymore. So you'd no longer fit into that exemption that entitles you to overtime. And now you're in a role that is overtime payable. So when you're inside sales, you get overtime. When you're outside, you don't, generally speaking. And so when you change the role, you change the position, and now you might be entitled to overtime. 
So do you bring it to, what advice would you give? Do you bring it to the employer's attention and say, listen, I was doing this, but because we're in this restrictive environment right now, X, Y, Z. I would recommend um, asking the question, but I would also recommend being right first. So you may want to consult an attorney just to make sure that your situation neatly falls into that bucket and you should be being paid over time. And there's a way to ask that question, I think, in a positive way to say, you know, I was doing a little research on the Internet and I've learned that I might not qualify for this outside sales exemption anymore. Can we talk about that? Let's talk about whether I should be being paid overtime. And you want to know what the kicker is with overtime because people listening might say, well, if I'm paid in a commission, I don't get overtime. That's not true. Um, overtime will be based on the amount of hours that you worked. So you take the total amount you receive in a week, divide it by the hours worked, and that comes up with your hourly rate. And then you get the, the overtime rate based on that. So it fluctuates, right? So if you had a $5,000 week, you get overtime based on the $5,000 divided by the hours that you worked. What are some common misconceptions from the employee point of view in regards to wage and hour? A lot of people think because they're paid a salary, they don't get overtime. That's the biggest one. That's the biggest one by far. Um, and that's not true. You have to qualify for an exemption based on your job duties, not your job title, what you actually do. What's the, what are you doing on a day-to-day basis? So what qualifies you? For example, I worked as a reporter and they'd always say, hey, you were set salary. There's no overtime. Well, the Biden administration is all over reporters right now. <laughs> On a funny note, but they did actually recently issue a Department of Labor a fact sheet saying that reporters usually are exempt if they're doing more than just carrying water. The AP says this. If they were doing reporting and adding some creativity to it, the AP News report says this. Here's how this applies locally, adding to it, getting flavor, giving ex- details. That's creative, and they're exempt. Um, but reporters have been the topic of a lot of overtime uh, questions recently by the courts because sometimes small um, news outlets use local reporters, and they really are just you know sharing what the national stories are and not really doing any single reporting. But when they add their own thoughts, ideas, commentary, or whatnot, that then catapults them into that exempt category. So creativity, jobs that require creativity, like our podcast host, host here, who's uh, a, has a creative job, he would be someone who does not get paid overtime. Professionals, doctors, teachers, lawyers, they don't get overtime if they're paid a salary. Nurses? And nurses are a tough one. So yeah, So it's borderline. So it depends on the type of nurse. An RN hmm. paid a salary um, typically is exempt if they're using that nursing degree. But take the nurse out of the hospital and put her in to say mm, a law firm, and now she's working as a someone reviewing files or a case manager. That's non-exempt work. It's different. So she's not she's using her, her nursing license, but not in the way that really was intended. So there's some questions there. So what about servers? There always seems to be contention there in regards to minimum wage, tips, etc. Right. So tips are different than a service fee. So I just want to make that clear. So let's talk about tips first, right? That's somebody who works in like the Duffy's or a restaurant that casual dining typically or high end dining where they get a percentage. So um, they need to be paid the, the tipped minimum wage, which it varies state by state. Um, and then they also need to be paid overtime. So they get overtime based on that, but they get, they only get overtime based on their tipped wage credit. So I think right now in Florida, it's, mm, I don't want to guess, but it's something like, in the, I'll put it up on the screen here so we can all see it. And then they get the overtime based on that tip credit. It changes. Florida fluctuates every year Why? because, because uh, it's Florida and we have yes, to make it difficult. No, but Florida's trying to increase the minimum wage overall. Mm-hmm. So right now we have the highest minimum wage in our state. It's going up a dollar every 
every year until it gets to $15 an hour. So we're ultimately going to be looking at a $15 an hour minimum wage here in the state of Florida. So would servers qualify for that and be tipped or is it half so that you could get to the 15? Servers get a a, a reduced rate um, based on the fact that they are getting a tipped employee. And in, in order to qualify for that, the employer just needs to tell them, that you're going to be um, tipped. They need to get at least $30 a month in tips, which is pretty pretty low threshold. But the one that they often um, can fail is the only tipped employees can be in the tip pool. So let okay. me... So if, Clarify if you, that. Yeah. So if like a manager is like, oh, I worked hard tonight, I should get 10% of the tip pool. So it's common in, in bars and restaurants to everybody works a certain number of hours on a shift. And at the end of the shift, all the tips go into a pot. And they divide it up between the servers and the bartenders based on the hours that they worked in that shift. So it's tip pulling. But the tip pull doesn't work if a manager or somebody who's not customarily someone that receives tips, if they are kind of have their hand in it, then they can violate the tip pull agreement. And that means everyone else should be paid the state minimum law wage and the Mm. state overtime law as opposed to the the lower tipped credit. So what are some problems you see? So some problems I see is, you know, companies, it's probably a good idea to have your managers out there bussing tables and helping, but they can't share in the tips. That's a big no-no. And they need to be transparent about how they're calculating the tips. And it never can leave the employee's possession. So a coworker needs to to do the tip out at the end of the night, not someone who's not. The hands in the tip jar should be limited to the people who are actually receiving the tips, not management. So from an employer's point of view, what should they know in regards to wage and hour law for their employees? So it's not so easy, right? So I, every for every rule, there's an exception, um, and and I wouldn't rely on what you think is right because this is an area where thinking what's right will probably lead you to maybe violating the law. Because <laughs> the law and the reason for that is the law was written in 1938. It was written for a world in 1938. There's only been a handful of amendments, and so it hasn't really caught up, right? So some positions that you'd be like, absolutely, that's a person that doesn't get overtime, like a paralegal. It's a high-level professional. Mm-hmm. I pay them a salary. They shouldn't get overtime, but that's not true just because um, the law hasn't really addressed that issue. So it's it's one of those areas where an employer needs to get legal advice, and titles don't matter. It's got to be the job. Um, managers are not all managers are, are equal, and I always like to give the Starbucks example, right? So let's say you go to Starbucks for your favorite latte, and a lovely barista brings your Starbucks to you, but she also happens to have the key to open and close Starbucks. She also has the power to refund a customer money if there's an overpayment or something. Um, and she can see out the register at the end of the night. And also maybe if someone calls out, they call out to her. But she's still the one there making the coffee. So even though it feels like she's in charge, she does not meet the managerial exemption because it's not her primary duty. Her primary duty is make coffee. And so that those little nuances and distinctions can cost an awful lot of money. Um, one one thing is the hmm. barista in that situation, she'd be entitled to overtime. And she'd be entitled to overtime going back almost three full years and get this, double damages. So really? she gets not only what she was that owed. That was written in 1938? Mm-hmm. Wow. It's called, they're called liquidated damages and also attorney's fees and cost. So these are not mistakes that are inexpensive. And there really aren't a lot of defenses. So, um, you know, these can be very, very costly. I read a statistic that said South Florida was one of the largest um, locations for wage and hour violations. So it's a it's a real issue. And it's one of the more common things for an employer to be sued for. What industry do you see it most in? Um, well, right now, maintenance. 
A lot of people don't pay maintenance <laughs> workers, I guess, for, by the hour. They're often paid by the salary, and they might wake up in the middle of the night to come running out to fix something, and that's compensable time. They don't get paid for that. So that's that's a common um, a common violation, maintenance workers. And there are some others, too, and it, and it changes all the time. Um, so there's some computer professionals. There's an exemption for computer professionals, but they have to be really high level. So not like the help desk at your company who runs and plugs in your printer for you. That person gets overtime. And so it varies. But I think a good rule of thumb is, you know, this is an area we need to ask for help because there's a good chance you're getting it wrong. Um, and the other part for, I think, those listening is deductions. I just had a call today about a worker who has been a server for 10 years, but this new company he works for, every time he breaks a glass, they deduct it out of his pay. Mm. Or his apron, they want to deduct it out of his pay if it's dirty. They want to make him get a new one. And so automatic deductions like that, that don't really fly. Um, you know, those are those are sort of common issues as well. What about uh, time off instead of overtime? Can you substitute it? You cannot, unless it's in the same work week. So if you're, if it's a person who's supposed to be being paid overtime, you can give them time off as long as it causes the time off. Then means they don't go over forty hours in that work week. But if they you go, oh, in the future we're going to give you comp time in lieu of overtime. No, that's a violation. A pretty common one, frankly. Mm. You know, I was always fascinated about the paid for travel time and mileage. And it seems that fluctuates as well. Yeah, so that and on call time too. Those are kind of those are kind of tricky yeah. issues, right? So if you're on call, you shouldn't you get paid. I mean, you yeah. can't. You're walking around, you're carrying. I was gonna say beeper. The beeper. Yeah, my... I remember 100. <laughs> percent So not the beeper. For our younger but this, viewers, but we can cell... explain that. Put <laughs> well, up you're a carrying your cell phone. So what the courts have said is it has to be a pretty serious intrusion on your personal life for you to get paid for it. Well, you think about it. It's ruining your day. You wanted to go out and drink with your buddies, but you can't. But you can't because you're carrying the pager and you're on call. And if you're a doctor, and in my case, a news guy, you were on call. Not compensable. Outrageous. Outrageous. I know. But that doesn't mean you can't negotiate for it with your employer separately. But it's probably not compensable time. The waiting, it's like when you're waiting to be called is not compensable. When, when you do take that call, that becomes compensable time. So you're sitting around waiting for that great story to break, and you get the call at 2 a.m., and you talk to the person for 15 minutes, and you realize it's a dud, and you hang up. Well, 15 minutes of time is compensable. But that's it, not the waiting time. What else are you seeing in wage and hour law? What it means with to be— With this world today. With this world today. I mean, really, the remote worker issue is really is really front and center. People, you know, working a ton of hours at home, they're uninterrupted and not taking a lunch hour. And so some employers have what's like an automatic lunch hour deduction policy where they take 30 minutes, mm -hmm. even if you don't take it. How do you know if someone's taking 30 minutes when they're at home? And so you've, if you're deducting two and a half hours a week for these automatic deductions and you're not checking as an employer to make sure they were taking them, guess what? That employee might have overtime if they worked a 40-hour work week. So those are common issues, I think. Wage and hour law, a never-ending kaleidoscope <laughs> of fun, it seems. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you so much for joining Can They Do That? I want to give a special thanks to our special host, Corey Sabin. Thank you, Corey, for joining us and asking all the right questions. For everything employment law related, please visit us on our next episode or in the meantime, at our website at scottlawteam.com. Until then. <laughs>